again, we can use it for for cooking things and keeping it warm, but it can also be used as a weapon. And that's where, you know, we've talked before about sort of AI versus AI. Uh, it, it helps good people do good things, but can help bad people do bad things too. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 25 of the For the Love of Data podcast. I'm your host, Robert Furr, a consultant with Capco based in Dallas, Texas. Today I have a special treat as I sat down with a good friend and noodle on the hype of artificial intelligence. Given that we're talking about AI, I also have a twist for today's interview, transcription. Today's episode will be transcribed using machine learning from WebASR, a free service provided through the University of Sheffield's Machine Intelligence for Natural Interfaces. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. Dara Fitzpatrick is a managing principal based in Chicago, Illinois. He studied software engineering at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland, and began his career as a software engineer, quickly focusing in on data-related challenges. He's a fellow data junkie in Capco's four data practice, and has spent the better part of the last two decades consulting various clients on many aspects of the data analytics and information management ecosystems. From system architecture to data visualization and program management, Dara has worked in a variety of environments on his clients' most difficult problems. Now on to today's episode. All right, everybody. I'm here with Dara Fitzpatrick, a uh, managing principal from uh, Capco. He is going to join me today to talk about a topic that I'm really excited about because it's something that we hear about in the media a lot these days. Uh, we're going to talk about AI, uh, but we're going to talk about the hype of AI. So Dara, please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and, and what your topic is. Okay. Hey, Robert. Uh, so Dara Fitzpatrick. I'm a managing principal at Capco based in Chicago. Um, I'm a leader with the data and analytics team here at Capco. And for those of you that don't know, we're the largest management consulting company that focuses just on the financial services industry. You wanted to know what is so interesting about artificial intelligence and uh, why I think it's hyped up a little. Well, um, as with any new technologies, uh, there's a period of understanding what exactly it is and uh, how it can be applied. Um, artificial intelligence has been around for a very long time. Um, the co term was coined back in the 60s. And um, what's interesting about it to me is that it's going through this, uh, this cycle right now, this hype cycle um, of going from something that is, uh, can solve all the world's problems to the realities of what can actually be done with it today. Um, there was back in the 70s and 80s a, a lot of promise around AI and uh, indeed way back into the 30s uh, people have been talking about machines taking over their jobs through automation um, and what really struck me recently was um, somebody came up to me and said uh, oh I've got this data set that uh, we need to, some help with can you just get some uh, one of your, your one of your AI machine learning algorithms to work on it and fix it for us and uh, what really struck me was even within our own industry, within our own company, there are people that don't quite get um, what's possible and what's not possible with artificial intelligence. So, um, so that's that's why it's sort of I think it's an interesting topic. Um, I will go ahead and define artificial artificial intelligence for you. 
and the way that I see it is that it is um, a uh, taking the function of being able to make decisions um, and by decisions I mean anything around pattern recognition or helping to decide um, whether a credit card should be issued or not or um, you know determining whether an egg is bad or not and and automating that in some way uh, using um, using machines um, and more so uh, there are sort of two different ways of looking at artificial intelligence one is that you simply take a decision and codify it in some way with rules um, or uh, you can go a step further and actually have the machine uh, try and learn the, the rules itself uh, through neural networks for example and machine learning and then uh, and then come up with the answer as the second case is very interesting because it may come up with unexpected patterns um, for what uh, for what it think the, the way that it thinks the world ha works absolutely I'm glad you defined it uh, in that context because I know the term AI means many things to many people and for some people visions of Terminator uh, starts to pop up when we start saying things like AI and so for the purposes of this discussion, we're not talking about a, a, a fully general AI like some philosophers uh, talk about. I think we're, we're concerning it more to a business context. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I think when we talk about the hype around it, um, that, is, that is true. The, uh, the Greg Kurzweil has estimated that around 2035 there will be something called a singularity, which is when uh, human and machine intelligence will come together. Um, and this is an important topic that people don't often talk about when, when talking about the realities of AI, it's not in a human versus machine context, it's in an augmentation or partnering context. So in around 2035, the, yes, uh, the, um, the, the combined intelligence of machines and, and humans will explode um, and, uh, and, and indeed machines may take over humans in, in terms of what they're able to do. But today, we're, yeah, we're talking about more realistic things within certain confined conditions, such as a game of chess, when, um, when Deep Blue uh, was able to beat Garry Kasparov at chess, and more recently um, being able to, at Google's AlphaGo, uh, beat the, the game that is the hardest game for humans to play, apparently, um, more recently. And then, even more recently than that, I, I believe that uh, there was an, an AI that learned the game of chess from scratch and was still able to beat the best chess masters out there, either human or machine. Um, in record time. So um, this is sort of where that gray area is. It's, we're not talking about Terminator, but we are talking about some very smart machines. Right. And I think that one of the differences here is specialized AI versus general AI. And so if you think about um, a calculator or, um, like you said, the machines that have been trained to, to play specific games like chess or Go, and I know that uh, Google has... Uh, recently built a machine that they were able to teach it both both chess and go um, yeah. so that's a little bit of a dual domain but it's uh, it's a far cry from the intuition that uh, that a human possesses today and so tell me a little bit about why you picked this topic the hype of AI at this particular point in time well again it's, it's a case of um, we're hearing a lot about it in the news and there's a lot of uh, excitement, particularly from the scientist side of things, all the possibilities, but also a lot of fear as well when people think about their jobs and they're seeing numbers about how many jobs may be automated over the next 20 years. 
there's a lot of concern about that. And so one of the things that we need to do when we're talking to our clients is to reset that and say, yes, you will probably see automated um, trucks on the roads within five years, but no, it's not likely that medicine is going to be automated within the next 20 years. So those sorts of things uh, make it very make this a very interesting time, um, and so, uh, so that's why I picked the topic. And you mentioned the singularity earlier. Do you feel like the concerns about the pace of learning are hype right now, but will become a reality if that 2035 date is met? Um, I so there's a there is a, a proven um, case where uh, people tend to underestimate um, when things can be done over time. The experts underestimate and the dreamers overestimate, but the experts do underestimate what can be done. So we're we're living in Arthur C. Clarke and William Gibson times right now. And so um, I do believe that it's out there. I do believe that it is is possible and probable. It'll happen. The date may not be perfect, but there's a lot uh, there's a lot going on. And what you may have just heard in the background is my Google Assistant kicking in. I've got my own little <laughs> AI that, uh, that just said, "My apologies, I don't understand." And that's pretty interesting Sarah, because time right in up. there. <laughs> Absolutely. There you go. Silence this. Turn so, my machine off. So some of the things you're, that you're mentioning, I'm going to try to put uh, some show notes together for this, and I'll link to a podcast by Sam Harris. Uh, he is a philosopher and author that has spent a good amount of time talking about AI and, and, and some of the things that you're talking about um, with with chess and with Go and the singularity. He touched on uh, on a recent one of his podcasts, so I'll link to that if anybody's interested in listening. Um, but Dara, tell me a, a little bit about what's going on in this space right now for you. So um, one of the one of the interesting realities that we have to face is that um, we're within a lab. Um, AI is certainly possible, and it's being used in very specific circumstances, very constrained conditions. But in the general case, for most um, for most users and most businesses, they're simply not quite ready yet to utilize AI. So Google can do things with voice recognition. It's very smart. Um, Microsoft is getting really good at image recognition as well. Um, the car manufacturers are getting pretty good at, at, at putting um, autonomous vehicles or, or introducing them at different levels. So uh, you may have assisted cruise control, for example but in very specific circumstances. And it's going to be a leap to, to actually bring that into the more uh, general sense of business where you know it's most of the work and decisions are being done by, by people these days. And one of the realities that is coming to bear is that our data simply is not there yet. And by data, I just mean regular data. I mean the information that's, that's produced by processes um, or uh, may be produced by analysis um, that are coming out of the systems and it is uh, if if you are aware of the, the work that data scientists do right now they often complain that over half the half their job is just cleansing data and cleaning data and it's not just that the data is dirty um, it may be from uh, generated with a certain perspective in mind so for example it may come from a sales system and the sales system 
is good at knowing what was sold. Um, it may not be good at knowing what was purchased. It may not be good at knowing what the creditworthiness of that customer was or who they were buying it for. And so um, it's really important to know uh, where the data is coming from. Um, some data may just be off uh, for environmental reasons. Um, the thermometer may not be correct. Um, and this is very important with the Internet of Things. Um, and in other cases, uh, and very importantly for me, I think in the long run is that some data comes with inherent bias. Um, and a good example is um, there was some there was a study done on uh, the care of, uh, of of patients in hospital um, with certain conditions, and they found that um, those that uh, that had uh, asthma. Uh, had better outcomes, and the simple reason was not because they were uh, less sick or um, or a certain type of patient, but it was that the, 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 when they came into the hospital, they were being treated differently right from the outset because they had asthma. They were they were um, being treated much more carefully for uh, for when they were diagnosed with influenza. So they had a lower mortality rate than the regular population who was. Who was uh, was diagnosed with, with influenza, and so if you just looked at it straight up, you you would think that it's okay to give the those with with asthma less care because they have a lower likelihood of of uh, of, of passing, when in reality the extra care was already built in. So that's just an example of bias and data. So it could be dirty, it could be off because of the way that it was captured, um, or it could have inherent biases in it. So. That is one sort of reality that we're, we're dealing with. Um, the other piece of it as well is that when you try and bring different pieces of data together, they don't always match up just right. And so um, that's another classic problem that um, you know you and I were, were talking about earlier today uh, with, with the client of ours, um, the, the mastering of data or having different perspectives on the data um, is is critical to this as well, so that you can make the proper decisions. And oftentimes, this is um, this is something that the people that are working with the data build in, or they may have just you know they may have a gut idea of um, how things should go based on their own experiences and past. And those are very difficult again to to codify into business rules. So all of that taken into context, and and of course there was the joke that you know. There's no chance that robots will take over the world. We can't even work out teleconferencing. So, <laughs> so it could it, it could you know all these things sort of sort of go into that. Um, yes, there's great promise, and yes, there are specific cases of how it's working very well for us today. But in the more general sense, um, there's still a lot of work to be done, and it's not until um, till businesses are able to generate good quality data that they'll be able to make good quality decisions. Thanks. There's a few things here I want to I want to reemphasize and make sure everyone understands. So, what I'm hearing you say is there's there's almost a, a world of basic blocking and tackling that we have to do with the our current state of data to get it ready not only for a diverse set of AI questions that that people may want to ask it right now and they're not able to, but one of the other challenges is how do we track data and capture data now for questions that we don't know we're going to ask in the future. And so I think that's a really interesting piece to think about. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Um, 
Yes, I'm, I've got a traditionally data warehousing background, so I'm a data hoarder by nature. So I <laughs> capture as much data and as much history to that data as I can. And um, it, it is it is true, that, and particularly when you bring in that historical aspect, things change over time. You may introduce extra products. There may be more countries created or less currencies available, and it throws everything out of whack a little bit. And though that basic block and tackling is is can be challenging, and yeah, you're right that um, that it is uh, it is a uh, it is difficult to to know now how the information is going to be used in the future to and therefore how to avoid the challenges going forward. So I think the basic rule is go in with the eyes wide open, and and um, one of the key qualities of a data scientist is to understand their domain. Um, and therefore understand the data as well. So tell me a little bit about what a typical use case is for your financial service clients. For for AI, um, it's still reasonably straightforward stuff. So um, it is, is, again, the work of, of um, quantitative analysts, as they may have been called at one time, or data scientists now. Um, or statisticians, it's it's looking for specific patterns in data. Again, not because of bias, but, but, but something that's happening within maybe a market or something that is happening um, on a website. So, for example, um, a fairly typical use case is the credit decisioning process and deciding um, whether somebody should get a credit card or not, or a loan or not, and, and what the ideal rate is for that. Um, Another example is potentially looking for uh, intrusions uh, on your website and looking for patterns um, to see if it is coming in from a, a strange part of the world that your customer has never visited before and is unlikely to visit. Um, and fraud, of course, is another big area too, to try and identify when the patterns of spending have, um, have changed significantly and enough to call it, to, 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 to throw up a red flag and contact the customer and ask them, was this really you? So those are some pretty pretty straightforward examples. And they're based on, uh, you'll notice that, that all three of them are based on this sort of idea of pattern recognition and trending and looking for outliers and then calling out those outliers. Um, unfortunately, uh, and this is where it gets interesting again, the uh, in, in these cases, um, there are parties uh, out there that will try and game the system. They will um, they will set up fake uh, identities so they can apply for credit cards. And they're not just doing it this when automation is, is thrown into the mix. They're not just doing it once or twice. They're doing it many hundreds of thousands of times per second so they can try and game the system and find loopholes and uh, and and try and get through quickly. And um, so, for example, if a, if a bank, which traditionally tries to lower the barriers to its customers to, for spending money, um, they will issue a credit card without having gone through a full credit check process. They'll say, you know what, we know you want to spend the money right now and we know you're going to spend it very quickly. Um, so we're going to issue it to you right now and then we're going to follow up and make, just make sure everything is good. Um, so the, the, these bad bad parties can take advantage of that and um, apply for a credit card, get an approval, spend the money, um, 
before the credit, the card has been shut down once they find out that that's you know that's not a, a real person. Um, and the, the same, so so there, you want to ask a question there, and, and the banks have a huge motivation to do that because if they don't, the, a, a true customer is just going to go to the next uh, institution, right? Yeah, correct. I mean, so for example, you may stand, be standing at a Best Buy um, register with a three thousand dollar TV that you were just itching to bring home. Um, and they can't tell the difference between that and, and another, you know, another some sort of hacking consortium uh, that is attempting to, to fraud them. So yeah, it's very difficult. Um, they've, they've gotten extremely smart with the way that they do these things, and when organized and when using automation and AI, they can they can turn it back against itself. And um, so the, us as pure, poor humans are are suffering because because uh, other people are using our tools against us. So let me ask you a question. I want, I want you to touch on uh, robotic process automation, RPA, and how that differs from AI. Um, when, do the, when does the line start to blur uh, there? Because you know, one could argue that basic RPA is you're giving it a task or a pattern that you want it to perform. Um, but do you, would you call that basic AI, or do you think there has to be uh, more no. self-sufficiency in it? Yeah, I think, I think there's a difference between... Um, uh, there's a difference between automation of decisions and artificial intelligence, um, and it's a very good question. So RPA, or robotic process automation, basically is a um, more advanced form of what we used to call workflow tools, um, and it's more advanced insofar as it can do a lot more. Um, it can. Uh, not only incorporate the manual processes that we know of all, but it can actually start reaching into systems and doing things uh, with screen scrapers that weren't possible before. It is, it is just a, it's a, it's the next generation. It's not revolutionary in my mind, um, but what, where it does get interesting is is the level at which you can incorporate this um, some artificial intelligence in there, but. Um, the, what we've seen is that it's still pretty, it's kept separate. So RPA will have certain rules in there, business rules, and it'll run like a rules engine to get those things done. And it's very strict. Um, uh, it doesn't make its own decisions. Everything has to follow the pattern that had been programmed into it. Um, but when you get into um, AI and, and deep learning and machine learning, where you're using th structures such as neural networks, um, to help you make decisions and it's not quite as black and white, um, that component is normally uh, sort of bolted onto the RPA at that stage. So it will go through the process of um, doing everything. For, a mortgage application is a great example. So it will go through the process of collecting all of the information. It will send out emails and, and look for responses back. It will ask you to send documentation. The documentation will come back. It may use optical character recognition or some sort of other um, form to look at that documentation and then process it in a certain way. But it's not until it gets to that stage of actually making a, a decision based on a lot of um, variables, um, so multivariate type of decisions, uh, and looking at um, other much more complicated information such as behavioral trending, to then uh, to then make the make a decision and then it jumps back into the RPA process again with it, its decision. So I'll give you I'll give you sort of a, a good example here of um, of what to what level we're talking. So 
the RPA will sort of clunk forward and do its step, 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 step. When it comes to the AI side, because of its power and breadth and the things that it can bring bring in, it can be considering more things than just, I don't know, your income. It could be considering um, the amount of time that it took for you to produce documents. It could be considering um, any number of variables uh, that that are shown to 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 have an impact on that decision. Um, in marketing, it even gets more interesting uh, because if you're if you go to a website, for example, um, you can do something called multivariate testing in the website that that will um, help you uh, understand the best way to, to present things to certain people that you may have never met before, but through their clicks through your website, you can start making determinations as to what sort of what cohort they fall into or what segment they fall into, mm-hmm. and. Um, you can have an impact uh, on whether they will buy or not, and it's called going through the funnel um, in a website. Um, and the color of a button, or a particular image that's shown to them, or a particular layout can have significant impact on um, whether or not they're going to buy. A classic example is Delta Airlines played with the color of a button um, to offer. Uh, a baggage, it was a baggage add-on for like 75 bucks, they would deliver your bag directly to your door, so you wouldn't have to wait at the airport. Um, and they found there was uh, a 1% uh, uptake in people taking that offer because of they changed the color of the button. Well, that 1% for Delta Airlines is tens of millions of dollars, hmm. and that's just from changing the color of, of the button. So AI there worked in mean, two sides. It worked on the what's going to impact the, uh, the 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 uptake of the people, you know, what's going to impact people actually clicking on that button, and it also helped with the other side of it, which is which is how can I ent- identify people that are going to be receptive to that signal to make them actually do this. So it sort of work in two areas, and that's um, that's where sort of you go beyond just RPA and go into very smartly segmenting somebody and then showing them something that's very smartly going to help them um, do what you are looking for, which is increase revenue. It'd be interesting to think of the counterexample of that where someone might use this knowledge to actually discourage someone from making a purchase. Like if they're about to reach capacity on a flight or something, that they start discouraging that in the hopes of encouraging someone to take a different flight or if you're Amazon to buy a similar but slightly different product that is has more stock or more stock close to you. Um, yeah, that does get more complicated because um, there are there are various things in play. Just like going into a store and the the assistant says, "I'm sorry, we don't have blue socks, but if you go next door, I'm pretty sure they have blue socks." In the short term. Um, they've lost that sock sale, but in the long term, they may have increased loyalty. So that is a very, that's a really good example of um, of a sort of a soft number or a, that that you're making a bet on uh, will play in the long run. And so there's this idea of the, the lifetime value of a customer is more is 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 uses this concept of loyalty. It's not just about the revenue for an immediate sale, but it's about this lifetime value. So. Um, that goes into it, and there's obviously some psychology behind that. Um, there's also partnership um, ideas as well. So we can't sell it to you, but somebody else can. And so, yeah, it, this is when it comes becomes very complicated. And not only from the data perspective, but you know, if you're a company like Amazon, 
um, you're, 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 there are potentially um, big impacts to doing something like that. So if Amazon says we can't sell it to you, but we here's a, a merchant that can, and they know that they're going to flood that merchant with requests and the merchant's going to fail or the merchant has bad reviews recently, then how does that impact the client's experience and therefore their loyalty to you? So that that could be, it, it becomes challenging. But uh, Amazon, I'm glad you brought it up because it's a very interesting example. You'll notice that Amazon, the only real way that you can see Amazon um, exposing its its use of such things is in, in, I know of two areas. One is recommendations of products. Um, and whether the, whether it's deeper or not, I'm not exactly sure if it's, you know, more than other people like you bought things like this. Um, but they are, they've put a lot of work into it and they've sort of simplified it to that idea of recommended products. And the second thing is that, uh, is around, um, the shows that they recommend and Netflix famously runs, a, a a competition to try and improve its recommendation engine, mm-hmm. which to me seems a lot of work for something that isn't still isn't very good. And, <laughs> um, you know, it's 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 it, and and throws in all sorts of things as well. My kids watch you know some kids show, and suddenly I'm getting recommendations for more kids shows. I'm like, don't you know? Since I clicked on the parent profile, I'm the right. parent. Yeah, or you throw one kid's toy in your uh, in your cart, and then your your uh, recommendations are all uh, door of the explorer for the next six months. Right, but <laughs> but we're dealing with very smart people here. Um, we're dealing with very smart companies, and so I think it's indicative. Um, and this is sort of one of those reality checks that you have to call sometimes with clients and say, if it was so simple, don't you think that somebody bigger than you would be doing it right now? Um, so that's that's sort of like. You know, one of the things you sometimes you have to say is yes, it's a great idea, but um, it is just too difficult right now, and we advise you to to hold off or maybe think of different ways of applying um, applying the, the technology you have. So you're you're touching on some challenges here, and so I do want you to go into a little more detail on this. Let's take the example of like Amazon. So for instance, I my wife and I we use one account for our entire family, and I would be interested to to know your take on the ability to parse out activity and divide it into different segments or profiles. Like, you know, maybe I do most of my purchases between 9 p.m. and 11 p.m. at night, whereas my wife does most of hers between 12 and one o'clock. You know, how much uh, power do we have right now to build those kinds of segmentations even within one login? Uh, and, And where do you see people doing that today or what are some challenges with that? Um, they're not generally doing that today, and there are simple challenges. I'll give you an example. Uh, there is, and again, you know, banks want to keep things easy for their customers, so they um, there are banks that will make it easy for you to sign up for a joint account, and in doing so, they say, okay, just get person A to type in their name and click the box, yes, I agree, and then get person B to type in their name and click the box, yes, I agree, and bit of bing, you've got a joint account. Well, the problem with that is there's no guarantee that it was actually two people that did that. It could have been the same person doing it twice, and um, that is quite literally, they're out of compliance because it is required by law for you to have a, um, a contract the so-called signature card is a contract with your customers, and if you can't prove that there were two customers separately signing those, then then uh, you're you're out of compliance. So that's a simple example of, of ways that 
it's already you know it's already challenging. Um, the there are certain signals that can be used, but unfortunately they're not very reliable. So I actually talked to Macy's about such things and how um, how to do this, and it's just it's simply um, too difficult to to make things um, heterogeneous, or in other words, make it a nice little split between one group and another group. Um, it just it, it's too hard, and and it may not be you and your wife. It may it, that you may be purchasing for your friend. She may be purchasing for her friend's daughter. Um, you may be purchasing for your dad. And so it's too easy to make assumptions about such things. So yeah, we're still faced with the, you look for a watch on Amazon and then everywhere you go from that point forward for the next three months, you're gonna see ads for watches all the time and only watches, almost to the point that you feel sort of coerced into buying a watch. But that's exactly maybe what they want. So, um, <laughs> It's it's still very it's it's still very difficult um, because the world is a more complex place than than um, computers can quite understand. Well, and since I've been thinking about counterexamples, I'm going to throw another one your way. So one of the challenges I have is I, we like to use one Amazon account, like I said, um, but my wife kept finding like shipping emails for gifts that I would get her uh, for her birthday and things like that. So yeah, I started my own account. And now right. I buy everything in that account, and she's under strict instructions not to open anything that comes addressed to me. Right. However, when I log into that account, there is nothing on it that I'm ever going to want to buy for myself for a recommendation. <laughs> so, like you said, my Facebook is littered with you know things like she's really into racquetball, and so it'll be everything from racquetball gloves to racquetball shoes, and I I, I couldn't care less about something like that, and so. Right. The, uh, the the segmentation on that has, has gotten highly twisted for me. Yeah, well, but you do bring up an interesting thing. So, which is which is that they're using um, they're using alternative methods for trying to have somebody self-select themselves. And so, um, yeah, different accounts. Uh, there are family accounts, and family accounts are now important as well because there is uh, protection for for underage. Um, individuals online and so they have to be treated slightly differently and so you you know it's it, it, it's a necessary for you to say um, uh, this person is is you know I'm logged in as myself and I'm a, a, an adult that can do things for myself and have financial responsibility um, whereas uh, my child you know may log in and they're, they can't be marketed to um, they shouldn't be able to hear explicit music but uh, the, yeah, so for recommendation the, engines, having those kinds of filters or lenses, they should. Like, yeah, wow, yeah. So, um, but um, but when you set up set up these family accounts, now it, it, as with everything else, they get they're very clever. So, if you use uh, the Microsoft ecosystem for quite a while, they've had this family concept where I can gift um, money to my son so that he can purchase games. I, but at the same time, I can also, it's called family safety, I can also lock down his account. So he cannot be, um, he will not receive advertisements, he will not receive invitations to become a friend, he will not receive chats, he won't be able to go online and play any games that are rated above 14. And so um, I like, as a parent, I really want that. But on the flip side, Microsoft is also getting a really good picture of who my family is and how old my kids are. And what they can what they can do with that information is uh, is limited sometimes, but um, does give a lot more signal to to what's going on in, in the real world. 
So you're touching on something that I uh, I wrote down a little note here um, to talk about uh, from. Uh, earlier you were saying some things that were going on in the space and you were talking about different uh, pattern recognition to do things like loan recommendations and things like that and you're starting now to touch on the ethics behind AI and I do want to spend a minute talking about that because that's something that I think is very concerning um, because you know some of the things we've talked about what Amazon does or doesn't recommend to me that's more of a convenience uh, challenge for me but if something is going to recommend or exclude me from a loan or you know there are some algorithms out there now that are being used to decide who makes parole and things like that and so yeah. there are some very significant ethical consequences there right and depending on what the model is if it's a neural network versus just a, a simple pattern recognition you have varying levels of ability to understand what contributed to that decision and so what are some things that you're thinking of for clients and just even in general from a philosophical standpoint, what, what worries you in this space? So there's an increasing um, concern from people such Elon Musk is probably the, the standard bearer for um, showing concern about AI in, in, in the general sense. And he's talking about you know everybody being able to go to Mars instead. And that's an interesting... He's also talking about if we're in a simulation or not right now. Oh, is he? Okay. Well, yeah, my, my 10-year-old son said something about the Matrix last night in such a context. But um, he, do, they do have, he does have very good points, and, and you're right, it's, it's about loans. Um, there is another – within banking, there's this concept of redlining um, where they basically do things um, – it's like districts. They map out these districts, and they say that there, should, there has to be one bank per district. And the reason they have to do that is because if banks um, could decide where they put their own branches, they'd only ever put them in high-income areas, high-income high and low uh, uh, bankruptcy areas, um, because those are the customers that they want. Um, but they are banking is at some levels um, a social right, and so um, the banks are required by law to to build their branches in underserved areas to provide banking um, uh, services um, such as the ability to simply have a safe place to put your money uh, and and so they're required by law to do that again if you put an AI on that just like you said it would probably not do that it would just it would put everything in all the banks in high income areas so why so so what, how do we deal with that today is we to deal with that through governance and compliance and regulations and this is what Elon Musk and, and his friends are saying and I agree with it is that we have to think now about the regulations that need to be in place to make sure that the that the these algorithms that are used are not these are not simply cold logical algorithms but they do take um, the the ethics and um, considerations for different uh, for d diverse populations into place into play and so um, so I absolutely agree with that that that, um, that we need to, to to have that there and this is it's forward looking yes but today it's possible to to, to do these things and again you know um, my son goes uh, okay Google and and okay, Google comes up and he's able to trick it into to responding to him. Um, we're not, the, the, the AI is not there yet to be able to be trusted to make those decisions, but it, it will be at some point in time. And when it makes the decisions, it has to be for good and should not be able to be abused 
or um, should not be able to to um, disenfranchise certain certain groups of population. Um, and the one other piece about this is, you know, I talked about the singularity and, and people coming together, and my view of um, of the way that things need to progress is through is through a teaming or augmentation. For now, AI does need to be supervised, and I think in the future it will it will continue needing to be supervised at, at different levels um, until we've worked out all of the kinks. And I don't believe there will be a case where AI will be truly, truly autonomous um, and be able to make all of its own decisions. And I think there's a, if you do look at Netflix, there's a, there's a movie a series called Altered Carbon. Mm -hmm. I'm, um, I'm only through the first episode of that. Yeah. So you'll see that there are some AIs in there that are, that are sort of pride themselves in being able to manipulate humans. And um, that is not where we want to be. So would you say that right now, from an ethical standpoint, do, do you think we're keeping pace with the ethics concerns, or do you think we've gotten uh, over our skis a little bit where the capabilities are outpacing our mindfulness toward the ethics? Well, you brought up that par parole example, and it's very, um, it's, it is a very good case, and we need to keep looking out for these. Um, I think it is possible. So, if you take AI, AI out of the picture altogether, you, you can also sort of remember that banks are fighting regulation um, being imposed on them anyway, and uh, they just they want to do what they want to do. And um, the challenge is that um, AI is just going to enable that to happen quicker. So you see flash crashes happening because um, you have algorithmic trading um, systems that make decisions much quicker than humans can stop them. And so um, I think that, that um, uh, it, those are cases of us going over our skis, absolutely. And I think these um, events are going to be important to remember so that we can try and avoid them in the future. But we are humans, we make mistakes, and we're going to build mach machines that make mistakes. And um, it's always happened and it always will happen. So we do have to trade off, uh, you know, what, what we can do. I, sometimes I, I sort of think back to just sort of a couple of, of, of uh, analogies you can use with fire. And, and one is that um, we fire is good for, for cooking food, but if not controlled properly, it can burn your house down. So, so, but we still use it. We still use fire. We still, we, because it has certain benefits to it. Um, and then the other sort of analogy that around fire is that, um, again, we can use it for for cooking things and keeping it warm, but it can also be used as a weapon. And that's where you know we talked before about AI versus AI. Uh, it it helps good people do good things, but can help bad people do bad things too. I really like that analogy. That's really insightful. I'm going to steal that one from you. <laughs> so let me sum up. We've, we've talked about some challenges here. Ethics, bias, and regulation are definitely uh, ones that I, I feel like firms and even individuals are coming into contact with those in very tangible ways. But back to the hype part of this, tell me uh, what some of the uh, places are where, where AI is just incredibly overhyped, like people are saying that it's going to be fire, but it's really just a spark from the lighter that's not even <laughs> igniting. Um, it's so I think it's I think it's in the in the again, I mentioned um, people being overly concerned with their jobs at this point in time. I don't think I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, 
the, 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 the machines taking over the world Terminator is not quite there yet um, but it is good it, it ha you have to be mindful we have to get ahead of this um, th so this, this sort of the negative side of it and then the, 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 the positive side of it is um, is in terms of what people think can be done today that isn't it just isn't possible it's oh well why don't we have um, a uh, why don't we have a, a, a robot that's that can um, come in and help take care of elderly people, um, which I think is a Black Mirror episode. But the why don't we just have that today? Why don't we just why don't we just create create an AI and robot thing and does this and it's right. fantastic, or to, you know, to and and or like I said, the simple case of somebody said, I've got some data. Can you just make get get one of your machine learning things to fix it for us? It's just it, we're not there yet. So I think there's sort of a couple couple of things. So there's the negative side and the positive side. That the fear and the promise are not quite aligned with reality yet. And then, but there is uh, the other agent that we haven't talked about here are the vendors and the futurists who um, it's within their it's within their their own interests to hype this thing up a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think uh, I heard this this stat about. Um, if you add the word blockchain to your <laughs> to our, our cryptocurrency, it's the name of your company. Um, it's it's ten times easier to get funding, um, and so it's that sort of thing where people don't want to miss out. It's this fear of missing out, right? Um, where they don't want to miss out, and they're just being hyped up by certain people who are who are you know want to sell newspapers, want to want to sell product, want to sell software, they want to get funding for their company. And um, and so they hype it up a little bit too much. Uh, so I think it's again we we are now living in the world of, of Arthur C. Clarke and William Gibson, um, and um, we we're probably underestimating the power of what can be done in the long term. But in the short term, just we got to keep re reality in check. You're you're reminding me of a company I can't remember the name, but they were like a manufacturing company listed on. Uh, the New York Stock Exchange, and they were at the very bottom, about to get delisted if they didn't keep their market valuation over a certain amount. So they rebranded as a cryptocurrency trading company, and their value instantly shot up and got them back into the realm where they needed to be. And they lasted there for about a week before people caught on and said, "How are these? How are, how are these folks that we're doing manufacturing really going to make it in cryptocurrency trading?" Yeah. And their value started plummeting back toward the uh, t toward the the floor to stay listed, but I think they may actually be under investigation by the SEC. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll add one thing here uh, that I think some of the promise that people are incorporating into their products of quote unquote AI. Um, I see two issues here, like in cybersecurity and in some of the data and 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 like personal fitness products, for instance. It seems like every company now has some kind of quote-unquote AI feature, but I think there's things that you can argue about, A, whether it is or is not AI, and B, what use is it? Like, like, like we said before, if people aren't even good enough to do the blocking and tackling of, say, e eating, e eating a, a healthy meal to support their fitness goals, do, do we really care about uh, you know, if there's an AI that recommends who they should be friends with on their, on their fitness tracking website? 
so I'm kind of curious. Like, there's it seems like there are some people that are just incorporating GWiz features and calling them AI, uh, but they may or may oh. not be AI, or they may not have any value. Um, through that. Yeah, I, labels. I mean, in some sense, yeah, maybe artificial intelligence. Um, but again, you know, going back to anything that could be automated in some way, um, or, or or could be. Uh, could seem to be um, smart. So we're talking about all this, and I think it was an article that just came out and wired about a, a, a machine that was beating the Turing test for like 18 minutes. And if you don't know, the Turing test is is um, is that measure of of AI is that somebody can have a conversation with a machine and think it's human. Right. Um, and so according to that, we're already there. But look at all the things it can't do. So. Um, it's it, they, they get smarter. Our, our our computer chips get faster. We get more memory. It gets more um, more access to data, so they can learn more. Um, but um, you know, if you scale it back in the in the physical realm, you're looking at insects. And can you say at what point an insect has become intelligent, or at what point an animal has become intelligent? And there's different measures for that. And so, um, so I think you know, in the in this A world, AI world, it's it's uh, they're just labels, and I think people will focus on um, what it actually does and what it does. It's it, it's a spectrum thing, right? It's not it's not black or white. Is it AI or is it a, is it not AI? For me, the measure is is it artificial or not artificial, and is it making decisions or not making decisions? And if it's artificial making decisions, to me, it's a it's a sort of AI. What are you most excited about in this space right now? Um, I'm really excited about um, this revolution. I, I do see it as a revolution, and it's and I think um, the World Economic Forum has marked it as the fourth uh, the fourth industrial revolution. Um, I, I'm excited that this is going to um, provide a lift. To what we do um, beyond uh, anything that we've seen before. So, um, just like um, automating the loom took people out of factories to a certain extent because there was still somebody who ran the loom, but the way that um, the flour mill, a, a windmill, uh, which is the first case of an automated system. Um, was able to take people out of the mills and out of having to grind the flour themselves. Um, in some parts of the world, I think in other in some parts there are tribes that are still grinding their own flour. But the way that it was able to lift people and free people up is most exciting to me. So how that plays out within sort of the grander context of what we've been talking about is, and this is when you when you're considering what jobs are going to stay and what jobs are going to go. Um, the jobs that are highly manual, highly menial, um, are going to go. And so those people are going to be enabled to do much more interesting things. And the 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 people that really liked doing those things are going to potentially become more artisans or craftsmen. The people who didn't like doing them um, can consider taking on other jobs. And it's not just about intelligence we've got to remember. Sometimes it's about empathy. And those are the jobs that aren't going to go anywhere. So if you're a nurse, you're in a great place right now. And you will continue to be in a great place because... Um, because that's not something that can be automated. That human touch, that human relationship 
uh, could never be replaced by by a machine. And so um, so there will be more. I think there will be more empathy in the world, more artists in the world. And yeah, there will be more machines, but those machines are going to be doing things we don't want to be doing anyway, unless. Again, unless you're an artisan and you want to, you know, make that thing yourself from by hand, and there are people that are very, very successful and they still have wood shops because they like making furniture in their spare time. Um, but in the in the general case, in the general workers' case, it will it will lift everybody up and enable us to um, to uh, uh, have certain things augmented and. Um, by AI, and so we can think about the more uh, more interesting cases and um, the more strategic cases as well. And I think there there may need to be some cautionary implementation of these things, where even if something can completely replace a job that was done manually before, that we have some method of transitioning over. Like you said, maybe we have an assistance phase. And, and we transition the people that want to get out of that into something else rather than just cut over abruptly and and say, sorry, you got to retrain into something completely different than what yeah, you Yeah, it, it, it's not going to happen that way because, because the, the uh, like you said, the machines need to be trained at some level. These automations need to be trained at some level and need to be monitored. So there's, there's a whole cycle of taking a process that's manual now, reverse engineering, understanding how it works, understanding what the rules are in there. And the people that are doing it right now are probably the ones that understand it best. But then there's also these other people who have never done it before but are bringing this fresh, this blank slate perspective to ask the right questions, to say, oh, that's cool, but how do you do that? And, like, and your, your subject matter expert will be like, oh, I never thought about, you know, thought about going into detail on how I do X, Y, Z. Um, so you're going to have that period of reverse engineering, a period of recreating, and so all the people that you know that create these things, the coders and the engineers, will have to create it. Um, so there's there's opportunity and cost to that piece. And then once it is stood up and running, then the person, people that were the subject matter experts, then get to sit back and monitor this thing as as mentors or supervisors and make sure that it's running good for a period of time and and they again I don't think they'll ever step away I think their their um, their jobs will just become a little bit more interesting and they'll be dealing with the edge cases a bit more so another analogy is if you walk into a doctor's office these day these days you're more likely to see a nurse practitioner who takes care of the 80% of the cases because 80% of the cases are the same, um, and then the doctors only deal with that 20% of the more unique or difficult or um, um, challenging cases, and will, are always there to back up the nurse practitioners in case the case is a question. Um, but the doctors get to focus on sort of high va higher value, more interesting work. And so I think the same thing is going to happen um, in, uh, in in automation and artificial intelligence as well. Um, there's going to be significant investment in the transition, and then even after the transition, um, those people that were in that position before will just have more interesting work. So you, you talked a little bit about this being something that could open us up to, you know, maybe slow down a little bit and focus more on the art of a craft um, because we we have the supplementation. And then we talk a little bit about the the AI being something that can assist us and would potentially allow us to do more, faster, stronger. How do we balance 
between those two and decide, like, how do we work that into a situation where it allows us to slow down and be more mindful rather than just forces us to do things even quicker and faster and, and accelerate the pace of our daily lives even more than they are today? Yeah, so I think that's going to be a balance between the organizations that are driving this change and investing and paying for the change and um, the workers who are being affected by it. Um, so that that's going to be that balance there. That, that and I don't think there's I don't think there's an easy way to to strike it or to to determine how it's going to be done. Um, the and it's going to be very very specific to circumstances. So again, consider some real world examples here. Um, the a, a company here may use um, knitting machines to knit sweaters. Um, because maybe they want to knit them close to where they're going to sell them or um, they want patterns um, to be done in certain ways and they so they, they'll employ knitting machines whereas there are other companies that decide you know what we're just going to ship this work offshore and get it done cheap cheaper um, in the short run and um, by, by cheaper resources and then get it shipped back here where we'll sell it and so there's all sorts of different, you know, things in play there that you have to consider. And I don't think, I think it'll be every case may be different and will be measured in its own regard. Um, and um, you know, we may seek out more unique things, and and they will be done by 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 people who like to who like to be artists. And sometimes we just need to screw, and we don't care where it came from. And um, if it if it's made by a machine, then that's cool as long as it's ready when I need it, where I need it. I think it'd be interesting to think about the implications of AI coming from different providers, like AI coming from Microsoft versus Google versus Amazon, and what the uh, pressure <laughs> would be as far as quality of life versus utility. Um, you're talking. Are you, are you talking about AI having personality? A, a little bit. But more so, you know, I think at least initially the um, the AI that is developed is going to be marketed toward use cases that the people that created them are most suited to. So I would assume that like AI for Facebook would be more socially oriented and AI from AWS may be more generally applicable to uh, a multitude of AWS slash industry um, challenges, yeah. but but more so how the culture of the company that makes it transfers over into the AI itself, either in bias or personality, or yeah. in hey, we encourage you to use this AI to to make your work life balance better, versus we encourage you to, to use this AI to perform better, faster, stronger than you could ever before. So uh, interesting. It's interesting sort of concepts, and I think you bring in a few different things there. But I'll yeah, say it's that, a little bit layered. Yeah, I'd say that that um, the the AIs will be the use cases in particular will be based on market demand and what the demand needs. And um, I do think the tools may may be different. Um, and I think certainly based on who implements them. Um, whether it's a company or a certain set of consultants um, will have an impact on the quality of those tools, the quality of the AI. Uh, I don't think it's going to be personality though. I think it's going to be either a fit or quality um, type of type of dimension that you're working along. Um, 
the uh, so uh, like I said, part of the goal of this is to is to have um, something that is free of bias as much as possible, or at least is compliant with the regulations that would be imposed upon it. Um, and the nice thing about AI is that it should become easier to audit and to test. And um, I, there are um, we're working on a way to make um, the, the, we talk about sort of deep learning or dark dark learning and, and, and AI that where it's very difficult to see how decisions were made and, and there are people working on making that more transparent. Um, so I think that's uh, I think that is is the way that it will go. Um, like um, you know some TV shows you'll see that there are architects and people that are that are better at doing that than others. Um, but again, I think it's along quality and fit dimension. I don't think it's on a sort of personality dimension. But uh, I think that there was a uh, Westworld where they started talking about the, the creator's um, artistic sides coming through in their characters. Um, it's uh, it, it, That's interesting, um, absolutely, but I don't think we're quite there yet. True. And that is another show that, uh, even though it's on my recommendation list, I have not gotten to that yet. So. Another good show. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, I, I, I want to. I watch a lot of TV, if it, particularly if it's anything to do with artificial intelligence. I I have a list of shows that are on my to-do list to catch up on. Altered Carbon is one. Westworld is another. Uh, but I uh, I I am overdue for a, a little dose of AI from from the the TV seasons. So, Dara, I, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. I, I do have one other question for you, but first I want to acknowledge you for, for sharing this time with me and sharing your thoughts. It's been a, a pleasure chatting with you, and I look forward to hopefully having some more discussions like this in the future with you. Of course. You're welcome. So Plus I'm going to give you the last word here. Tell me something uh, about this space that, that we don't know. Oh, my gosh. I've shared so much already. Um, wow. Let me think. Something uh, I didn't ask you that you think our listeners should know about. Wow, I am absolutely drawing up a blank here. Maybe if I had an AI to back me up, it could help me <laughs> answer this question. Um, uh, I, here's, a, here's sort of an interesting factoid. There's a game called Dota 2, which um, there's actually a, a competition for a million-dollar purse. And um, it was considered to be a milestone when um, an AI was able to beat that game and beat, beat human players in that game. That surprised me. And uh, again, it may seem it may seem trivial, but to a lot of people, it was a big deal. So right. hopefully, that's something you didn't know. That is definitely something I did not know. Thank you for sharing that. All right, that is going to wrap things up for this episode. Um, thank you so much for the time, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. All right, cheers. We hope you're enjoying the For the Love of Data podcast. If you are, please support us by leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts, such as iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. To stay plugged in to all things data, subscribe to our mailing list at For the Love of Data. You can also find show notes for all of our episodes on the website as well. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's topic or ideas for future episodes. To get in touch, tweet us. We're at Love of Data or at Robert Fur on Twitter. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, keep spreading the love of data to the world around you.